Welcome everyone to today's devotion. We're in Revelation chapter 7, and like the rest of Revelation, there's a lot of debate here. Although with chapter 7, the, the focus is much more narrow than in, say, chapter 6, where there's a lot of moving parts. So you got to interpret not just the first horse, but the second, third, and the fourth, and the fifth and sixth seal, and all that. So this is uh, more straightforward in terms of, of its focus. There's really two parts, and the question is, are they directly related, or even are they uh, the same, essentially, what is described in the first part is the same thing described in the second part. And that, of course, has to do with the 144,000, um, particularly 144,000 Jews. Um, the chapter 6 ended with the question, remember, the, the sixth seal is the um, uh, is the day of the Lord, at least that's my interpretation of it. Some just see it as an act of judgment, um, but I'll take it as day of the Lord just for the sake of our purposes. And the question is, who is able to stand? And we saw at the end of chapter 6 that people are crying out to the mountains, fall on us, um, for who can stand against the judgment and the wrath of the Lamb, right? Well, the answer is given in chapter 7. The answer is the 144,000 in the multitude. So, what, what, so, so you've got to see chapter 6 and 7 together. Remember that the seventh seal hasn't been, bro- hasn't been broken yet. So what happens in chapter 7 is related to the events described in chapter 6. And here we, we see that in chapter 6, uh, looks at God's enemies, uh, particularly those who target the people of God. And so in the fifth seal, we saw uh, the, the martyred saints under the altar crying out to, to the Lamb, How long, O Lord, before you will um, do justice? Chapter 7, so if chapter 6 is God's enemies, chapter 7 is God's people. Right, so, so there's no war or violence or famine or death or any of that here. Rather, what we see is a return to chapter 5. In chapter 5, it was in chapter 4, it was all about the 24 elders, the four living creatures, the, the mighty angels, all of them. And then you get the multitude. Here, we primarily see the multitude. And so one wonders is if the vision that is described in chapters 4 and 5 is uh, similar, if not the same, described here. Now, uh, we see it starts here in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. So it's to the east. Remember that the temple opens to the east uh, towards the sun. Um, With the seal of the living God, he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm uh, earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or sea or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Well, as you can imagine, there's some debate as to what exactly being described here. But what I'm most concerned with is um, the sealing on the foreheads. Right? What What is that? Well, um, in Revelation, there's, there's two times this is done. There's the sealing of the saints here in chapter 7. It's referenced later. And then you have the sealing of the mark of the beast, which I believe is chapter 13. So the sealing is, is important. And sealing um, implies ownership. It implies uh, security. Um, uh, it's a type of certificate. It's, it, it has its purpose. Now, sealing of the saints has an Old Testament context. Uh, Ezekiel, in particular, mentions this. Um, and uh, I remember reading the Left Behind series that the seal was something that only Christians could see other Christians, you know, they could see that seal. I don't think that is what's being described here. Um, But rather, it is a literary device to describe those who are the people of God. Now, in verse 4, it says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. And they're sealed from every tribe 
of the sons of Israel. Now, here's the issue is, are only 144,000 people sealed? And if so, what do you do starting in verse 9 where you have a great multitude, an unnumbered multitude, who have the benefits of the 144,000? So are they the same? And if so, then, then what do we do that only the 144,000 are sealed? Um, and so, so this gets to what are the 144,000? Well, you can, there's two ways to take this. One is literal, okay? Um, if you grew up Jehovah Witness or familiar with Jehovah Witness theology, uh, they take this very liberal, uh, literal. Um, now, they don't take it literal that it's 144,000 Jews. They believe it's a select number of 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses. They dwell with God in heaven. The rest of the Jehovah Witnesses um, will dwell on the earth, a good earth, a great earth, but it's not heaven, you know. Um, so they're, they're the JV. The rest of us are going to be annihilated, so we will exist, so we'll just sleep for a long time. Um, but having grown up in a dispensationalist context, um, this was taken as being literal. That is, 144,000 uh, total Jews will become Messianic Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and so if you read Left Behind, um, they all sort of get saved around the same time, and, and they become missionaries, right? They're just going around. Many of them die as, as a result of the Antichrist, but, but they just go out and they, they have a successful work as missionaries, right? Well, that's possible. Um, so in that context, you have 144,000 Jews, and you have an un, unnumbered Gentiles, starting in verse 9. Um, now, there is a couple of problems with that. One of them is... Um, most of these tribes, um, we don't know what's happened to them. Um, and so um, the lost tribes of Israel is, is a real challenge here. Now, if you're Mormon or come from a Mormon background or, or understand Mormon theology, Joseph Smith believed the Native Americans um, were the lost tribes of Israel. Um, now, DNA has disproved that, but that was a common belief uh, in, in the early American experiment. Um, so there is a literal perspective, and it's, it's got its arguments that's for it, especially if you hold to a chronological view of, of Revelation, that it's describing not just the patterns of humanity, uh, but a specific period of time. Um, but the other option is to see the 144,000 as symbolic. And I'm leaning in that direction, just to lay my cards out there, but I, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about a lot of things in Revelation. Um, 144,000 is, of course, 12 times 12,000. Um, now, I know many of you thought I didn't realize that there was so much math in uh, theology. You would be surprised. Um, now, in Revelation in particular, 12 carries with it a, a, a symbol of perfection. So, yes, you have 12 tribes of Israel. You have the 12 apostles. Like we, we can pick up on some of this in the Bible. But in Revelation in particular, it carries this. Uh, a good example of this is, is in Revelation, I believe it's 22, where the New Jerusalem is measured. It is 12,000 stadia in length, width, and height on each of the four corners. So, so the New Jerusalem is described as a type of cube. And what is a cube? It is it is It is perfect in its length, width, and height, right? And so, so whether or not Jerusalem, we're, we're all going to be in this weird cube, I, I, I don't know. The point isn't that. The point is is the significance of the numbers and the images that, that are used. And so um, another example, if you want another example, is in chapter 12, ironically enough, 
Revelation wasn't written with chapters, but ironically, chapter 12 opens up with a woman who is, um, she has 12 stars on her head. And we'll, we'll look at that, I believe next week, we'll be looking at that um, next Friday. Um, so, um, again, it, it symbolizes perfection. She doesn't literally have stars on her head. That, I mean, she, she would have to be one very large, very large woman, like Galacticus from Marvel Comics or something. But the, the, the imagery and the, the symbolism of the numbers is there. So with that said, what, what you have is um, the idea of, of, of perfection. In fact, what you could do in chapter 7 is compare it with chapters 21 and 22. A lot of the same imagery we see here, we see there. For example, uh, the seals on the forehead are mentioned in both. Uh, the twelve tribes are, are clearly laid out in both. The nations is an emphasis in, in both. The throne of God is seen in both. Uh, the temple was there in both. The, the talk of living water, which we'll come to later on, where, where, where God implores all who, who come to me who are thirst, I will give them to the drink of living water, which is very Johannine in, in his theology. And then there is the wiping of tears. It's striking. When we think of God will wipe away all the tears of their eyes, we think of the inner revelation. But that first shows up in chapter 7 of Revelation. My point here is, is to see that perhaps, at least consider, Revelation isn't necessarily a chronology from beginning, middle to end. But rather, it, it, it tells a chronological story in a cyclical way. And so, I suspect there is a correlation between the martyred saints of the fifth seal, where we got a peek into what it is they were doing. And then what we see here is what is actually happening in heaven while all these things are happening. Right? And so 144,000 Jews, as a way of saying, look, look, a, a completion of the saints. They're, they're saints not because they're Jewish, but because they believe in, in, in the Lamb. Right? And that starts in verse 9. After this, I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Now, it, what's striking about this is, if the language of the nations and the languages and the tribes and people groups and all that speak of Gentiles, okay, that makes sense. However, notice they have palm branches in their hands. This imagery of the end of chapter of verse 9 and beginning of verse 10 um, is the imagery of the Feast of uh, feast of Tabernacles, as laid out in Leviticus 23-ish, something like that. So, so what John is doing is he's mixing common imagery we think of Gentiles, every tribe, tongue, language, nation, with imagery of the Jewish people, Feast of Tabernacles. They grab their palm branches. We associate palm branches with the triumphal entry, but that imagery is used for the Feast of Tabernacles. So, we've got Gentiles being very Jewish. But then again, we've got Jews identified not by their ethnicity, just their ethnicity, but, but, but by their faith in Christ. So I suspect either what we have is the same group described here, the 144,000 and the nations, or we see that whether you're ethnically Jewish or not, you're, you're part of the same global movement, the kingdom of God, the church of Christ. I, th I think that's what's going on. Again, I could be wrong, but I think that is what is being described here. Now, now notice also what's happening here. In verse 10, they cry out with a loud voice, and they all say the same thing. 
in the same language. In fact, you can go on to the rest of chapter 7 and they sing some more. Now, how is that possible? If you are from uh, all the languages, all the tribes, peoples, and languages, literally languages is mentioned there, how is it they are singing in unison? The answer is the gospel. Go back to Acts 2 where you have a where you have a reverse of Babel. At Babel, you have the unity of man is dispersed by the languages, diversity of languages. At Pentecost, in Acts 2, you have the diversity of languages being brought together under the proclamation of the gospel. And that's what you have here. So you have martyred saints and saints in general from, from among the nations throughout all time. And what are they doing? It is a reverse of Babel singing in unison salvation belongs uh, to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Verse 11, and the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. So notice you have angels, living creatures, elders. Right. So, so there, there seems to be a hierarchy of, of the, the divine council. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Well, that sounds like chapter 5. It's supposed to sound like chapter 5. Right, so chapter five and four and five is going to emphasize the the elders and and the angel or in the four living creatures. Here we're going to emphasize uh, the saints, along with them, um, and the question is raised by one of the elders: um, um, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come from? That's kind of the question we're wanting to ask in our interpretation. I said, "Sir, you know." Now that is the sort of answer Ezekiel would give Christ is a humble way of saying, look, look, you know the answer to, to these things. Don't ask me. You're the one with all the wisdom. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. Can, can I just add a footnote here? One of the problems with a classic dispensationalist perspective is you divide the seven-year tribulation into two parts, the tribulation and the Great Tribulation. But if you follow the chronology, assuming the Revelation is a chronology, the Great Tribulation here is too early. So that's why I think I think it's just tribulation in general, not necessarily in particular. I could be wrong on that. You dispositions are going to holler at me, I'm sure. Uh, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That is my favorite Im imagery in the entirety of the Bible. You have the white. Remember we talked about white yesterday uh, with the horsemen and, and, the, and the saints, martyr saints. So you have white, purity, holiness, whatnot, uh, righteous. But they're white, dipped in blood. Now, that imagery does not work in narrative. It does work in apocalypse. In apocalypse. That's why, um, as confusing as the language can be, it is it is uh, a fantastic form of literature. Well, let's see what they sing. I don't. It's much of it from chapter five, so I don't. I don't want to. Do I, I do want to emphasize a few things. Verse 15 at the end, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So remember, you have martyr saints and, and all the people of God in great tribulation. And what is it that they get? They, they get, this is like Psalm 23, they are sheltered. So remember, Jesus says, how, Oh, Jerusalem, how I long to, to gather you as a hen would or chicks. So we're sheltered in the presence of God. Boy, is, is, isn't that just, just good news? Just to meditate on that. They will hunger no more, neither will they thirst anymore. 
Again, that language is of chapter 21 to 22, but it, it's, it's Genesis is here. No more hunger and thirsting, for, for God will provide for them from the spring of life and the tree of life. This is Garden of Eden imagery. And then verse 17, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. So notice that the shepherd is the lamb. Chapter 5, it's the, the lamb is the lion, or the lion is the lamb. Now it's the shepherd is the lamb. I did a whole sermon series um, uh, mixing these metaphors. Um, uh, in, in Hebrews, the high priest is the lamb. So I, I did this like a three or four part series. It's fascinating stuff. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from, from their eyes. So what, what, what should we, we do with this? One of the things I want us to see here is we as Christians would do better if we spent more time in chapter 7 and less time in chapter 6. What I mean by that, practically speaking. Now, read them both, yes. What I mean by that is our view of things are too earthly, not heavenly enough. So in our suffering, in our uncertainty, and in chaos, what we have a tendency to do is we sound too much like those at the end of chapter 6 saying to the mountains, fall on us we live in fear. You think about 2020 has demonstrated how often the church, particularly American evangelicals, have our eyes too focused on the affairs of men and too little on the providence and sovereign care of God. So we trust in false shepherds, whether they be politicians, presidents, or systems, rather than in the true shepherd who is gathering to himself his elect, whether they be a literal 144,000 or what I believe is an innumerable amount of saints from around the globe across time. You see, if we see the affairs of man through the lens of chapter 7, we will not need to fear the things of chapter 6. And remember, John is writing to churches who are suffering and he's reorientating their perspective. Here are the people of God in chapter 7. There are the, the, the enemies of God in chapter 6. One's perspective changes everything and is the source of peace. Hope to see you guys here Monday. See you then.